hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. The impulse to embrace fantasy over reality is as old as the human mind, I suppose. Americans did not invent it. But when it comes to willful self-delusion and escapism, we're exceptional, right? If you're talking fantasy, the USA is the greatest country in the world. With our Disneylands and our $200 million movies, the glossed-over stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and our history, our Purple Mountain Majesties and Fruited Plains, please don't mention the more pervasive sights on our landscape, like strip malls and fast food joints. This is Scene on Radio. I'm John Bewin. Yeah, maybe sounding a little snarky. Sorry about that. In this episode, part two of our three-episode miniseries, Travels with Mike, revisiting spots that John Steinbeck wrote about in his classic 1962 book, Travels with Charlie in Search of America. Steinbeck drove the country for three months with his dog Charlie and wrote about what he saw and the conversations he had with regular people. Some of those conversations were almost certainly invented, but I forgive him. A half dozen years ago, I went to some places on Steinbeck's journey and in each spot collaborated with a local artist. I followed the artists around and asked them to talk about how things had changed or not in the intervening half century and to respond to Steinbeck across the years. Okay, so um, I can do them one at a time or I can just rip through the entire thing and we could reassess. Um, in the role of Steinbeck this time out, Ray Suarez, the longtime public TV and radio host and author of The Latino Americans, among other books. Here we go. Ray will be reading the passages from Travels with Charlie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> John Steinbeck was a clear-eyed realist in many ways, the author of novels rich with social commentary like Grapes of Wrath. But he also wrote lyrically about places, and he admitted he could get carried away by romantic notions about place and nature. Our first stop in this episode is North Dakota. Bet you didn't see that coming. Meet our guide who will drive us around the flatlands. We've now turned west and we're going over the Red River of the North. And it starts about 40 miles south of here and it goes... My name is Wayne Goodmanson. I'm a uh, photographer, a landscape photographer. I was born in Fargo, North Dakota in 1949. But this is the route in uh, 60 that Steinbeck would have traveled, except I don't think the interstate was done then. So he would have been on the road that this is sitting on top of and occasionally runs alongside of, which was Highway 10. John Steinbeck, in his travels with Charlie, introduced Fargo like this. Fargo, to me, is brother to the fabulous places of the earth, kin to those magically remote spots mentioned by Herodotus, Marco Polo, and Mandeville. 
akin to those magically remote spots mentioned by Herodotus and Marco Polo and Manville. From my earliest memory, if it was a cold day, Fargo was the coldest place on the continent. If heat was the subject, then at that time the papers listed Fargo as hotter than any place else, or wetter, or drier, or deeper in snow. They jokingly say you can stand on a beer can in Fargo and see Grand Forks, which is 90 miles away. It's just that flat. And he continues, I must admit that when I passed through Moorhead, Minnesota, and rattled across the Red River into Fargo on the other side, the Red River into Fargo on the other side, it was a golden autumn day. The town as traffic-troubled, as neon-plastered, as cluttered and milling with activity as any other up-and-coming town of 46,000 souls. It's bad to have one's myth shaken up like that. And here's the ever-present north wind. Now, you don't have much in photography except literally where you stand and what you put next to what. So I'm moving around till these tire tracks align with the tower and this great old vintage camper. My take on North Dakota is a result of having spent my whole life here, seeing it in all the seasons and seeing it in all of my seasons. It's next to this cornfield is probably six feet high. And so I've had the long look at it. That gives one a very different take than someone who's traveling through. Oh, here we are. Exit 314. We are turning. Uh, this is where Steinbeck, uh, he drove through Fargo-Moorhead, and he saw the sign for Alice and said, what a great name. I'm going to Alice. He pulled off as we just did, probably in this exact spot, some almost 50 years ago. Alone, so alone that I could cry. I wanna be one. I remember one time showing my work in Manhattan at the Museum of Modern Art, and one of the assistant curators was looking at my open landscapes. And I could see that he was uncomfortable. And finally he sort of blurted out, No, wait a minute, the town's behind you, right? And I said, In this photograph, you mean? He said, Yeah. Yeah, well, you're on the edge of the town, right? And I said, no, no, it looks like this, you know, in all four directions. So he, he felt very uncomfortable out there. And then, I mean, I know people who've grown up here who look at that openness as, as opportunity. I mean, you can do anything. You can go any direction you want. Um, wonderful. This is beautiful hollyhocks, 10 feet high, next to the hog shed. Uh, where they do, they repair old motorcycle hogs. Howdy. How you doing? Doing good. Um, so how long have you been in business doing oh, uh, just started motorcycle repair? Three months ago and, and uh, you know, down in Phoenix and worked at Colorado Springs Harley and just don't like the big city. A writer named John Steinbeck came through Alice. Oh? Yeah, and he wrote about stopping at some camping area not too far from here because isn't the Maple River just uh, west of here? Just west, right down in Enderlin, you drive right to Oh, it. that'd be the place to catch it. Yeah, there's a park right along it, right on it. 
Good talking to you. Yeah, if you just go south seven, eight miles, you'll run into a stop sign. That'll be Highway 46. You hang a right three miles here on the gas station. Wonderful character. Great tattoos, wonderfully scruffy beard. I like driving the gravel roads, driving with the radio off, being able to stop wherever you want, stop the car in the middle of the road, get out, and just stare for a while out there until uh, you can kind of make some sense of what's in front of you. So it has a lot to do with appreciation of, um, of place. I try to apply some level of, if you will, visual democracy. So all things have some form or shape. One is not better than another be it the railroad, be it the way roads were made, or the way farms were built, but just look at, look at them simply as marks on the surface of the earth. Yeah, I don't have much money, but I'd bet a, a good chunk of it. Is this, this is where Steinbeck was 50 years ago, which in itself is kind of a nice thought. Um, were you here then, you would see this little pickup with this camper and this poodle down there, and this guy with a goatee out there having a cup of coffee with a little bourbon bump on the back. I'm sitting on this park bench right here. This is probably very similar to the one that he sat on here. He meets this itinerant performer, Shakespearean actor, and he has this exchange and he spends more time talking to this person who may have existed or didn't exist, but all in a way of making a comment about America and maybe Americans, and the nature of the place. And the actor is now speaking. And he says, you know, when show people come into what they call the sticks, they have a contempt for the yokels. It took me a little time, but when I learned there aren't any yokels, I began to get on fine. I learned respect for my audience. And I think that's the, uh, that's the message. I think that's what that that's what that character uh, was meant to say about people. On Steinbeck's travels, he wrapped up his uh, summation of Fargo this way. And I found with joy that the fact of Fargo had in no way disturbed my mind's picture of it. And I found with joy that the fact of Fargo had in no way disturbed my mind's picture of it. I could still think of Fargo as I always had, blizzard-riven, heat-blasted, dust-rattled. I'm happy to report that in the war between reality and romance, reality is not the stronger. By the way, if you want to look up Wayne Goodmanson, and his extraordinary landscape photography, which I highly recommend doing. His last name is spelled G-U-D-M-U-N-D-S-O-N. His people came from Iceland, you see. Next we head west, way west, to almost the tip-top of California, Humboldt County. John Steinbeck grew up in Salinas, of course, northernish California, so redwood trees were familiar to him. But he wrote about the sequoia in mysterious, almost alien terms. This might seem innocent enough, a literary device, but what if you see redwoods not as strange, but as close relatives? And what if you and your people have been exoticized, alienized, 
by the dominant culture. Meet Susan Tweet Burdick, a Yurok Indian basket maker in Humboldt County. Okay, so the fruit bowl, uh, the materials that um, she used in here is willow root and also wood warrior fern that's dyed with alder bark. We're in the new library of College of the Redwoods. Most of this collection is, this is Yurok basketry. And then there's bear grass. The white in there is the bear grass. And the black in there is maidenhair fern. So we have, there's a lot of preparation uh, into making just one basket. We have always had this from the time, from the beginning of time. And it's been passed on. And, you know, we've struggled. There's been massacres here. They took language away from us. And yet, we still can set and weave. We are on a scenic drive through Trinidad. And I'm looking over here and I'm trying to see if there's any huckleberries getting ripe. Huckleberries last month I seen huckleberries ripe at that humble. Uh -huh. Yeah, huckleberries are ripe. We're driving a Nissan, very small truck with a little lady and sitting in the back that has very little room. But this is how we do things here. We just make do with what <coughs> with what we have. What I said was, uh, hello, my name is Uchnahich, and my wide rim hat person name is Crystal Richardson. I'm a Karuk person. Okay, we're going to be into the redwoods here. You scare me, Goy. What do you want, huh? Oh, I just opened up. We pulled into uh, the parking lot for the big, the big tree and opened my door, and here's this um, blue jay flies up. And he's sitting up on my, my door. Not afraid of me at all. What you want? You got message? Oh, just starving, my goodness. Oh, you guys got pretty blue feathers and all that pretty black feathers. Not too far back in time. The animals actually, they could speak like we spoke. We communicated with them. Big tree. From without glasses on, I can see that. The height is 287 feet. Diameter is 23.7 feet, and the approximate age is 1,500 years old. When John Steinbeck came here, I think that he has a different understanding about them. Krista, come and read this. Or loan me your eyes, one of the two. Where was the passage? The redwoods, once seen, leave a mark or create a vision that stays with you always. The no redwoods, once seen, leave a mark or create a vision that stays with you always. No one has ever successfully painted or photographed a redwood tree. 
the feeling they produce is not transferable. From them comes silence and awe. It's not only their unbelievable stature, nor the color which seems to shift and vary under your eyes. No, they are not like any trees we know. They are ambassadors from another time. They are ambassadors from another time. But they're not from another time. They're here, like we are. That's what I can't think how he must have seen them. Right. And you can't take one thing from our environment and and look at it as something any, anything any different than than that fern growing there. Yes, they are very very old, and they do live, you know, for a long long time. But they're part of us as much as we are part of them. Just like the river now, you know, we're having trying to get the dams removed. And I don't think people really realize that, but the river is only as healthy as the forest. The forest is only as healthy as what we give back to them. We take and they take. We give and they give. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Hope you don't mind walking because I don't pay to come into this park. This is um, Patrick's Point. This is where our village is. It actually is a tourist attraction for this park and we have to pay like anyone else to go in there. I refuse to pay. Okay, so we're gonna go into Sumig Village. Now we need to get down the hill someplace here. Anyway, this is one of our houses here. The regular house for family house, uh, women, kids lived in, round entrance. And so you'd have to get down on your knees and you back into it. Up on the top, they have these uh, shakes up there, these planks that come across that can be removed. And that's where the smoke comes out. And um, it's made of redwood. All of the houses on the on the coast here are made of, of redwood. So this is something that, again, that John Steinbeck didn't see when he passed through here. I stayed two days close to the bodies of the giants. To me, there's a remote and cloistered feeling here. One holds back speech for fear of disturbing something. What? From my earliest childhood, I felt that something was going on in the groves, something of which I was not a part. When you take the time to really see, to really feel, we could talk to some people, you know, the rest of our life, and they would never realize what we're trying to say. They can't understand it because they've never been there, they've never felt it, they've never seen it, they've never heard it, they've never smelled it. Everything teaches you, not only the redwoods. Basket weaver Susan Tweet Burdick near Oric, California, and her young friend singing there, Crystal Richardson. Next time, I said I was taking liberties with Steinbeck's itinerary. Having reached the West Coast in Humboldt County, 
we'll double back a little to the eastern edge of Washington state, where Steinbeck wrote of meeting a young gay man in 1960. We hear from a man who almost could have been the same guy, except he was born 25 years later. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine what it would like to be Robbie in 1960. I mean, my own, my own journey in the 80s was terrifying, so I'm sure how alone he must have felt, how scared and how badly he just wanted to go away and get out of here and find people like him, you know, just to find his community. And we'll hear from a Latina poet in Steinbeck's almost hometown, Monterey, California. Big thanks to Ray Suarez for lending us his voice for those Steinbeck readings this time. The 1960 music in this episode by Percy Faith and his orchestra, Brenda Lee, and of course Miles Davis. Music also by Blue Dot Sessions and Lucas Bewin. Thanks for those ratings and reviews on iTunes. You know who you are. Keep them coming, please. They really do help more people find the show. Follow me on Twitter, at Scene on Radio, and the Scene on Radio Facebook page if you're more of a Facebook person. The website is sceneonradio.org. The show comes to you from CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. <laughs>